Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with registered dietitian, Dan Fellman. Dan, do you want to introduce yourself again for the third time to the listeners? I am Dan. I am a registered dietitian. I've got a master's degree, master of science in human nutrition, also a personal trainer and competitive uh, powerlifter. Great. So I don't think we talked much about the personal training in the past. How does the personal training combine with the dietitian work you do with clients who, you know, are working on their nutrition? Yeah. So I don't actually technically, I guess, utilize personal training certification so much, but I do, you know, give my clients who do ask for it, at least some general guidance in terms of workouts. I used to provide basic workout plans in the past, you know, uh, structured resistance training programs for, for clients in the past, you know, these days for my clients who do resistance train or who do power lift, I, you know, provide some general guidance as needed, but really the nutrition is where most of my work centers around. That's really where my background is. My higher education is in nutrition. So, you know, the uh, personal trainer, it's kind of like a nice uh, certification to have. Again, I don't really use it a ton in my business, but, you know, at least have the title. Absolutely. Yeah. You can uh, dip into that, that well of knowledge. Sure. as needed for sure. clients. So if you have a client, you know, it's it's sort of fat loss season right now, you know, post the, the holidays and a client is looking for fat loss as, as their main goal when working with you, is it required that they do resistance training? Do you not talk about it at all? Where do you fall in terms of adding in resistance training with fat loss? Well, I mean, obviously my opinion is that it's optimal to do uh, resistance training if you are in a calorie deficit, you know, since as you probably well know, if you do diet, if you are eating in a calorie deficit and you're not doing any resistance training, some portion of the weight loss will be muscle. Uh, in fact, there was a study that came out not too long ago that indicated somewhere in the vicinity of, um, I want to say it was like 20-ish percent of the weight loss in, in, in men would be uh, muscle and a slightly smaller percentage in women. So you know, that's my opinion. However, I don't necessarily push it on clients. It really comes down to where the client is at in terms of kind of readiness to change. You know, certainly if a client is doing well, you know, on the dietary side of things, you know, and is losing weight, that's their goal. I may recommend doing some form of weight bearing exercise, but, you know, at the same time, it's not something I necessarily force on people, you know, and, and if the client shows no interest in doing it whatsoever, it might not be the first thing that I recommend. So while I think it's absolutely fantastic to include in a fat loss program, including some of that resistance training, whether I recommend it to a client kind of has to do with their readiness for change, you know, what their goals are. So again, the extent to which I recommend it would probably depend on the client. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Individualize it to the client. So if a client's goal is fat loss and they want to, you know, improve their body image, and improve their aesthetics they want you know to have more definition they want some semblance of some definition in their abs you know glutes or arms what have you in that situation then would you say that it's essential to resist and train it would be strongly advised you know if someone did want to have the people often use the word toned, you know, for that kind of uh, physique that they want. I would strongly advise for, for someone who wants that that look to eat in a calorie deficit if they, you know, aren't already sufficiently lean, as well as, you know, doing some weight bearing exercise, compound movements, just to make sure they have that uh, base level of musculature to, to have that physique. 
you know, so, so it would generally be strongly encouraged. But again, whether I actually set it as a goal for someone, it's going to depend on that individual uh, and kind of where, where they're at. Yeah, totally. So, you know, with my own work, you know, a lot of people want to do exercise, exercise more, lift weights to look better, to, to lose body fat, to build muscle. And those benefits are great. And, you know, if you train, if you lift weights consistently, it is guaranteed you will build strength, you will build muscle. It's just in my opinion. All right. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're, if you're not building strength and building muscle, something in your programming is off or maybe your nutrition potentially. So my focus is not on the physique goals with clients, but it's on the sort of internal change that comes with resistance training and, you know, seeing yourself, you know, show up consistently and improving other areas of your health and improving your mental health, you know, and just kind of feeling more confident in the body you're in, you know, do do you think that it is safe to say that if someone trains consistently over the long term, they will build muscle anyway, and it will make their nutrition easier to manage anyway, without that being their primary focus when they start? So whether resistance training will in and of itself result in kind of positive changes in, you know, their, uh, you know, nutrition and body composition, kind of, that's what you're asking. Yeah. When, when taken as a long-term habit, you know, so. Yeah. Well, it's certainly helpful to, to have resistance training and really specifically a internal motivation to engage in resistance training rather than having the goal be strictly achieve, you know, a certain level of muscularity or, or whatnot, having that uh, internal desire to really do resistance training on a more regular basis. I mean, that is obviously going to be a positive. I mean, certainly it's, it's not uncommon for people to, uh, once they've incorporated resistance training into their daily habits, that other habits, uh, positive habits may follow suit. You know, someone may realize that, oh, if they don't get enough sleep, then that negatively affects their resistance training. That may motivate them to sleep better. Or same thing with eating. If they eat a suboptimal diet, whatever that may look like, you know, and they realize that that's not helping them get stronger and, and, and perform well in the gym, they may naturally choose better foods. So it certainly is a beneficial thing. Now, whether it's guaranteed that that in and of itself will result in other positive changes. I wouldn't say that that's necessarily the case because obviously there's a lot of factors affect someone's eating habits, someone's lifestyle habits. And there are plenty of people who do go to the gym and they do resistance training, but you know maybe it's it's a little bit more mindless. There's not really as much thought into their programming, so they're more so just going into the gym and just kind of doing movements, not really paying attention to volume from week to week or sets or reps and particular exercises from week to week. And they might just be kind of spinning their wheels and overeating on the weekends, that kind of thing. So I'm sure that's pretty common. So I don't think that just resistance training without kind of any other focus is necessarily enough, but it's certainly helpful. You know, it's certainly a very positive, you know, behavior to include regular, consistent weight-bearing exercise, resistant training. Most people who are able to would greatly benefit from it. It's not, like I said, it's not necessarily a guarantee though, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. And I want to add in that, you know, following a structured resistance plan, following progressive overload and tracking their lifts also, Mm -hmm. you know, following that approach and and figuring out what style of training they enjoy. And also just exercise is inherently enjoyable if we kind of give it a chance and have that long-term view and, yeah. and not focus on an outcome. I think that's really where the benefit is to be found with exercise and, and resistance training. That's kind of what I was getting at. 
Yeah, absolutely. Having having process oriented goals and having the exercise resistance training be something that people genuinely enjoy, that's going to be most ideal. You know, if someone goes to the gym, and this is where it can kind of be a struggle, or at least a lot of people, you know, as you and I both know, uh, generally speaking, keeping track of you know exercises and weight lifted and reps done on a week to week, month to month basis is positive, right? Because that allows progress to be made. You know, you can really ensure that measurable progress is being made. So that's obviously really good. At the same time, there are some people who may find that boring. I don't, but you know, some people may as well. So you know, that's why as as coaches, as practitioners, we have to balance optimality with also what will keep the client engaged and, and in it for the long term. So really fostering that intrinsic motivation is another important factor for practitioners, be it with diet or exercise. So we always kind of want to balance those. But you know, certainly it's it's optimal if someone does is able to have that level of discipline and be able to do kind of keep their uh, reps and sets, keep a close record of that so they can ensure they're gradually improving over a long period of time. And if, you know, they, they can have at least on some level, enjoy the process that will definitely pave the way towards a great deal of success there. Absolutely. Yeah. Some people are motivated, you know, by uh, hitting a PR relatively regularly. Some people are motivated by things like improving their technique or different ways. So I guess, yeah, it's, it's kind of meeting the client where they're at. Is, exactly. Is, is where it's at. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's, you know, the challenge that is, as practitioners, we all Based on some level, uh, making sure we're meeting our clients where they're at rather than where we necessarily want them to be. It's tough because we, we do kind of often things we know or we think we know what's best for the client, at least on paper. But again, if the client can't necessarily stick to it, if they're not ready for it, it may not be what's best for them. Absolutely. Yeah. We've got to meet them where they're at. So for sure. speaking of where you're at, Dan, you recently did a, a powerlifting meet. So, you know, what inspired you to compete again? And, you know, what did you learn from? Your most recent meet? Honestly, I just really like pushing myself physically. And, and I like the idea of trying to be as strong as possible and uh, really pushing my limits there. It's something that I am very passionate about. I like the idea of kind of having it be official by doing it in, in competition, you know, kind of having like an official total there. You know, I like to kind of treat it as a competition with myself to try and be the uh, strongest version of myself there. I don't know if I'd say I'd like learned anything per se. I mean, it was my sixth competition, but I do like kind of looking at competitions as kind of a practice opportunity to practice performing under pressure, you know, and to uh, stick to a plan, even when I'm nervous, even when feel discomfort, like from nervousness, from anxiety, you know, I think it can be very beneficial opportunity to practice some of those kind of mental skills and obviously just trying to get strong but for the sake of getting strong. Yeah, you like a challenge like myself. Yeah. So yeah, I did a, a race myself on Sunday. And you know, what I tell myself is not so much the outcome is what I'm striving for, but more so the feeling of like kind of freedom and just leaving it all out there. It's like this indescribable but very tangible feeling in the moment of trying like a hundred percent at something and just knowing that you tried your best. Exactly. I kind of feel as though you mentioned that a little bit. Why is that so enjoyable trying your absolute best on the powerlifting scene? I don't know. It just is. You know what I mean? It's just that feeling of knowing that I pushed myself, you know, to be able to lift 500 some pounds or so over three times my body weight or what have you. And knowing, you know, that that it's something that not that many people can do in terms of like a percentage of the population. So it's a really great way to uh, feel strong, I guess. It's kind of hard to put into words. It, it really is. Yeah, it has to be experienced. And I know for me, it's quite hard to like 
go, you know, a hundred percent, a hundred and ten percent, and not be af- afraid of the consequences. You know, like yeah. usually, for example, with work, you can definitely work too much or anything else. Really, there's there's obvious consequences, but in uh, competition, it's you get a really good positive feedback loop from it. You get rewarded from going as hard as you possibly can. I feel like, and uh, there's only positives to be achieved. Yeah, when, exactly. when you're when you're mindful about the approach in terms of you know the programming and stuff like that. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's, you know, a lot of positives there, which with, again, just kind of stretching yourself and pushing yourself to your limit. You know, there's a lot of positives that I find, you know, not just directly kind of physically, but mentally as well, and being able to encounter future challenges in, in life or business or what have you. Yeah, it's like a, a tool that you can carry over to other areas of your life. Exactly. So, you know, again, mentioning the post-holiday time period we're in, if you have clients who are starting up now, what are some of the common recommendations you make to people who maybe took the month of December off in terms of their health or just found it a real struggle with deadlines with work, social commitments where their health just took a back seat and now January they're restarting? What is the the typical kind of suggestions you make to people in that kind of situation? So probably the most important one is to set goals that are sustainable specifically process goals. So behavioral goals that are sustainable and that someone can see themselves doing for years on end, I think is the most important thing because around this time of year, New Year's resolutions, you know, oftentimes motivation is really, really high and people may set ambitious goals, especially ambitious outcome goals, you know, like losing, you know, 30 pounds in four weeks or, you know, whatever it is, or even ambitious like behavioral goals, like going to the gym every day, two hours a day, I don't know, but have you, and then they burn out. And then they just kind of say, screw it. And then that's kind of it. Whereas if clients more so make more more modest behavioral goals, they can really see themselves sticking to for a long period of time and they're patient with themselves. You know, those behavioral goals, those process goals can become habits, you know, and that's really what we want. Someone developing good long-term habits that'll make it easier for them to to lose weight because uh, it'll be easier for them to do the behaviors that lead to uh, weight management since they'll have become habits. And once something is a habit, it's easier to continue to do and they'll, they'll be sticking with it for a long period of time. And as we know, you know, long-term weight management, it requires really sustainable behavior change. That's really what I recommend. It's nothing too fancy, nothing too crazy, nothing that I'm sure you haven't heard before, but, you know, oftentimes it's kind of the simple advice that's most important. So, you know, making realistic, sustainable behavior change, you know, and I try to to really foster someone's internal, you know, intrinsic motivation, you know, and bring out their reasons for why certain goals are important for them and working from there. So if someone is not familiar with intrinsic motivation or examples of how they can tap into that, do you have any kind of client examples where someone who's unaware of the intrinsic motivation could be become aware sure. of this. So when I say intrinsic motivation, I mean basically someone where their motivation comes from within themselves rather than externally. Like an external motivation might be, you know, trying to lose 30 pounds by March 1st for a wedding, you know, or something like that. Or or external motivation might be if someone's doctor tells them that they need to, you know, lose weight or else they risk diabetes complications, just factors outside of themselves that are, you know, motivating them to make, 
you know, changes. And it's not that external motivation is a bad thing, but oftentimes it's not enough. And especially when that external factor is no longer there, like that person isn't seeing that doctor or the date of the or the wedding has, has already passed, someone may not be left with as much external motivating factors, whereas an internal motivating factor is someone, the motivation lies within themselves. You know, like if someone really uh, understands that going on walks in the morning, it energizes them for the day and they actually feel better each day. And that's what motivates them. You know, that's an internal motivation in client sessions, really drawing out those uh, evoking those internal motivations that people have is really important for people to, to tap into those because really focusing on those intrinsic motivational factors will be really important for fostering long-term behavior change. So is it fair to say that internal motivation is far less limited than external motivation? I would say so in general, yes. I would say it's less limited and it's less likely to be affected by external factors. Because, you know, you hear people say, oh, I want to lose 30 pounds in, in three months or, you know, I want to lift, you know, X amount of weight in, in whatever amount of time. And you're mentioning long-term goals. So it's like, how do the two not mix? Like, why is a long-term goal better for just any client? And then why does the uh, extrinsic goal not fit with that, that long-term approach? Well, it's not that it necessarily doesn't fit. You know, people can have extrinsic goals and external motivations, but, and, and maybe, you know, you, you have someone who is only focused on a temporary goal. Like someone has a, a bodybuilding show in six months and that's their only goal. And they're not worried about what things look like after that. And maybe, you know, then maybe in, in that case, the external motivation is totally fine. But for most people, they're usually looking to improve their body composition, you know, or strength or performance or what have you, not for a temporary amount of time. You know, if someone's goal is temporary, then sure, having external motivators, which are likely going to be temporary, may suffice, right? But if someone's goal is long-term, if they want to have that goal be sustained for the long-term, then having strong intrinsic motivation that's less likely to be perturbed by external factors is going to be really important there. So it's really about the time course of the goal, you know, and, and whether that goal is something that someone wants to sustain if that makes sense. Yeah. That they want to yeah, continue to work on. So for me, my long-term goals would be, you know, ideally I live till I'm a hundred, God willing. That's, you know, very <laughs> ambitious. Yeah. I, I completely understand how ambitious that is. And uh, also to like get fitter as I get older. And I know there's going to come a point where that will stop, but you know, at 31, at the age I'm at now, I know that there's a lot of potential to get fitter as I get older. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's, they're, they're kind of uh pie in the sky type of goals. Right. But Sure. You know, what are some examples of long-term goals that people can realistically kind of aim for, or that maybe you even have yourself? In general, uh, having a goal of, of kind of, like you said, maintaining or, or improving their level of fitness, you know, as they get older, I think can be a really good one because obviously that's very long-term and that's going to keep you motivated for the long-term, you know, trying to stay mobile, you know, to be able to play with your grandkids, a really good one there. For a parent, you know, maybe having it as a long-term goal of modeling um, healthy and balanced eating, you know, for their kids as they grow up, you know, can be a really good long-term goal because that's something it's not really going to stop, you know what I mean? I guess unless in, in, until I guess the kids are moved out, but that's something that's going to be kind of continually there, you know, that intrinsic motivation to achieve that 
will continue to be there as their kids continue to grow. So just kind of thinking of long-term of goals with kind of that longer timeline like that. Again, it's not to say that a shorter, more uh, a kind of outcome-centered goal is bad, but if that's all that's driving someone to change their behavior, you know, it may not be the most sustainable approach in the world. So yeah, just like they say in, in finance, diversify your portfolio. We're saying diversify your health goals, pretty much. Yeah. Internal, yeah. external. Yeah, yeah. Bringing it back to uh, improving health, but not just, you know, your body weight. What are ways that someone could improve their health without simply just losing weight? Like, do you have client examples where they've been able to markedly or, you know, measurably improve health markers without, you know, focusing on the scale weight? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in general, if someone's currently sedentary, then exercising will improve. I mean, we have data to indicate that going from sedentary to active will or can improve various cardiometabolic markers. So that's, you know, your uh, blood pressure, blood lipids, blood sugar, you know, that kind of thing, even if uh, weight change doesn't take place, especially improving cardiovascular fitness. Someone sedentary, they can do that through resistance training or cardio, just any kind of movement. You know, if someone is sedentary, improving their cardiovascular fitness, which is kind of another way of saying improving their heart health is going to uh, have tremendous health benefits and, and helps someone live longer, you know, since uh, one of the biggest colors, if not the biggest of Americans is, is like heart disease. So really anything that improves cardiovascular fitness, like I said, exercise of any kind, I think is really, really good there. There are very obvious one is eating more fruits and vegetables. I mean, that will have uh, health benefits irrespective of someone's body. You know, people who do eat the most fruits and vegetables tend to have the lowest rates of cancer and other, you know, related uh, diseases and mortality, which uh, I don't think is, is necessarily just due to weight alone. You know, if I remember correctly, I think even if you control for BMI, eating a diet with more fruits and vegetables will still have you know, some benefits, obviously with the fiber, that's going to have some benefits uh, specifically in, in terms of improving blood lipids. So uh, a lot of basic things like that, um, exercising more, eating more fruits and vegetables, that is going to improve someone's health, even if they're not necessarily losing weight, kind of looking at, like I said, those cardiometabolic risk factors, blood pressure, blood sugar, and A1C, uh, blood lipids, LDL, HDL, triglycerides, you could also look at waist circumference. I mean, it's it's that's going to be somewhat correlated with weight, but that may be a bit um, more predictive of you know diverse health outcomes than just weight alone. So those are some things also look at as well. And I'll also mention, almost forgot, as you probably well know, uh, someone is not currently resistance training and they start resistance training that will uh, likely improve uh, mortality, especially because, you know, as people get older, their risk of falls and subsequent uh, bone fractures increases. So uh, building some lean mass, doing some weight bearing exercise can help with that. So again, it's sort of a lot of the stuff that we already know, kind of like stuff that we know that's good for us, exercising regularly, resistance training, eating a lot of fruits and vegetables. But that stuff can really improve your health, again, independent of body weight. Yeah, it's almost like what health benefits would your doctor notice as opposed to like the person on the street, you know? Yeah. Or you and your body, you know, just let's just say the majority of the, the day living in your yeah. body, what, what health benefits do you notice? Because really it's it's other people that will notice our physique really are, you know, yeah, that small. Yeah. Yeah. In the day. So something I've been thinking about recently is uh, general just supplements to take, you know, I'm, I'm a big uh, 
fan of taking supplements and, you know, just making sure that I know the benefits of them in advance. You know, what, if any, are some supplements that you recommend, you know, when first working with a client? I'm a, I'm a very much a minimalist when it comes to supplements. I mean, there's very few supplements that I'm just like, oh, everyone should take this. In fact, I don't really think there's any that fall into that category. If I had to create a list, I mean, I would say that benefit to risk, you know, ratio, I would say that general multivitamin it's probably not a bad idea for most people. I mean, I know there's a lot of different kind of like fancy multivitamins out there, but I mean, if you just get kind of a generic one from pharmacy or from Amazon or what have you and have it with food, I don't really see any harm in that for the most part. You know, I guess unless someone is on specific medications like a blood clotting, you know, medication like warfarin where it could interact with vitamin K, but that aside, I don't see any harm in having like a, a general multivitamin for people who live in areas where they don't get much sunlight. If they go to their doctor and their vitamin D levels are low, then perhaps supplementing with a vitamin D supplement may be worth considering there. But again, I don't think that that's really going to do a whole lot unless someone has a deficiency or at least an insufficiency there. You know, an omega-3 supplement like a fish oil, if someone isn't eating a lot of fatty fish, a lot of people tend to have pretty low intakes of omega-3 fatty acids. It's just, you know, a type of fat that's found largely in fatty fish, a little bit of it's in flaxseed, walnuts, that kind of thing, has anti-inflammatory properties. There's some research looking at the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. You know, we get a lot of omega-6 fats in our diet, not, not that much omega-3s. Towards that end, maybe having a fish oil supplement could be of benefit. Besides that, I mean, not a whole lot on a very general basis. I mean, I think for there are specific instances in which specific supplements may be beneficial to some people. For that, I would highly recommend people check out examine.com. I'm sure you're familiar with them. I used to work for them, actually. They're a really good resource if you have kind of specific supplements, specific vitamins or minerals or other supplementary ingredients that you want to look up and see if it's beneficial for you. But again, I mean, the supplement industry is not well regulated if it's even really regulated at all. So uh, there's a lot of claims made on a lot of supplement labels that tend to be misleading at best. So in terms of uh, resistance training, creatine monohydrate is actually one of the few supplements related to muscle building that's, that's actually well studied and, and shown to have some pretty decent benefits. So taking five grams of that per day is, is not a bad idea. And if you want to have like a pre-workout, especially if you're working out in the morning, maybe having caffeine before your pre-workout, there's a few other things that, that may slightly improve workout performance ever so slightly. But besides that short list, again, there's none that I would really recommend to just kind of like a general supplement for everyone. It would more so kind of come down to the individual. Nice. So we got a multivitamin, a fish oil, maybe creatine if you're resistance training. And then are you not counting protein as a supplement or are you just leaving it out? Uh, because... I mean, I tend to think of protein powders as food, but if you want to include that, then, you know, a protein powder, which again is especially if someone either for older individuals who may have, you know, who may benefit from, from more protein, who uh, may not have as large of an appetite, obviously protein supplements for them can be really, really good. Obviously for athletes, strength athletes, especially, you know, where higher protein intake, you know, is as high as maybe 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilo body weight, 0.7 to 1 gram per pound. Obviously a protein supplement, you know, a protein powder will be immensely beneficial for those individuals. I'll also say with that protein recommendation, if someone's significantly overweight, they should not use their current body weight for protein recommendations. They'll end up eating way too much protein. You know, if someone's 5, 10, 350 pounds, 
you know, has a lot of weight to lose, they should not be, or, or they would not benefit from having 350 grams of protein. I might go with like your height in centimeters or something like is kind of like a, a ballpark, but protein and supplement can certainly have utility. Again, I tend to think of that almost as food, but sure, I'd throw that in there. You would say that if someone's resistance training already, supplementing with protein is almost like a given that they, maybe that they don't take it every day, but they have it on hand. If someone is resistance training and they're not already eating a high protein diet, or they're not already eating 0.7 grams per pound of, of body weight, 1.6 grams per kilo, or, you know, again, if they're significantly overweight, maybe using their height in centimeters is kind of a ballpark there. If they're significantly below that and they're not already using a protein supplement, then I think it would, it would have quite a bit of utility there. Great. So then for more athletic populations, you know, slightly more active than general population, maybe just kind of the category of ourselves. Is there any supplements that you would consider or start recommending for this type of population? Like I said, I mean, prior to workouts, you're not working out like in the evening, late afternoon where it could affect sleep, potentially uh, caffeine before your workouts. Usually the the ergogenic dose, the performance enhancing dose that's generally studied is three to six um, milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Again, if someone's significantly overweight, I, I might adjust that. You know, some other ingredients you'll see out there, such as L-citrulline, beta-alanine, betaine, which in certain contexts may have some utility. If I'm remembering correctly, beta-alanine may have some benefit if you're doing almost kind of like more muscle endurance work, kind of high rep work. Betaine, there's some some research indicating it might be effective, but just as is kind of like an overall, I mean, really the staples, the creatine monohydrate, maybe having caffeine before your workouts, if you want a little bit of performance boost, protein supplement, those other ingredients, you know, that are common, L-citrulline, betaine, beta-alanine, I would recommend someone going on examine, honestly, and just kind of looking into those in a little bit more detail to see if that would have any benefit. But that's really, you know, the short list again. I mean, it's, I think the impact of supplements on health and performance, I'm not saying that there, there's no impact, but I think it's, it's not, of paramount importance as eating a relatively nutritious diet. You know what I mean? And, and uh, getting enough sleep, training regularly, you know, and with intention. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you're sleeping enough, if you're getting sufficient exercise, following a, an exercise plan mm -hmm. and eating your fruits, vegetables and getting sufficient protein and fats, then it's, it's almost like the majority of supplements won't do anything in that case. What would yeah. you be thinking on that one? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say if someone is already doing everything they can to, to optimize things, maybe some supplements will have a small effect at best, but it's, it's not going to make your night or day difference for, for most people. You know, again, I think there are specific instances in which specific supplements may be beneficial for certain people. The actual magnitude of benefits that come with most supplements tends to be overblown. Interesting. So, you know, I watch YouTube, I see a lot of advertisements and one very heavily advertised supplement is uh, AG1 or Alpha Greens 1. And, you know, you've recommended fruit and vegetables and you've said that, you know, we should be getting these in. And as far as I understand, Alpha Greens 1 is, is getting your, your greens in a, a dose, in a supplement form. So what, what's your opinion on that as a supplement if someone is struggling to get their fruits and vegetables in? Is that the Huberman brand or is, does Huberman do a different one? I'm not sure. Is it the Huberman brand? I know he has advertised it before. With green powders, I know people have asked me about it. Like, hey, can you can I just replace my fruit and vegetable intake with having a greens powder instead? 
I'm not aware of any study that, or if it is, I, I just haven't seen it, that looks at, you know, people who eat several servings of fruit and vegetables per day versus people who don't, but who have greens powder. And then they like compare benefits over many years. In fact, I'm actually pretty sure that study doesn't exist. So I can't say definitively, I, I would tend to say that greens powders shouldn't be used as a replacement for fruits and vegetables. You know, we do know just in general that there are some benefits that just come from nutrients that are found in, you know, the food matrix, which is just a complicated way of saying the, the nutrients that are just found in, in the food in their own form. Take out kind of uh, just, just kind of specific nutrients and isolate them with, and this can be the case with a multivitamin, the absorption might not be the same. Effects of those, you know, nutrients might not be the same. So I wouldn't think that it would be like a replacement. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend them as like a replacement. And also, you know, with fruits and vegetables, this is especially beneficial for folks who have body composition goals. One of the big benefits with fruits and vegetables is they are very high volume, low calorie. So if you eat fruits and vegetables, you can eat large volumes of them without a lot of calories. That makes dieting, fat loss, or maintaining an appropriate body weight a lot easier. You don't get that benefit with greens powders. So now if someone were to say, hey, like I can't have fruits and vegetables, all I can do is have greens powders. It's probably better than nothing, I would think. Again, I, I can't look at a, a study and kind of definitively say that. I would tend to think that it's better than not getting any fruits and vegetables at all, but I would tend to say that it would be better to get fruits and vegetables in their whole form. You know, that would be my guess, my educated guess there. So more research is needed as is an answer in a lot of questions on that one by the sounds. Yeah. Right. Will it hurt someone again, unless they have like a specific like vitamin that they can't have or mineral that they can't have? I wouldn't think it would hurt other than the money that's that you need to buy it. But again, in terms of whether it's it's as good as just eating fruits and vegetables, I would tend to think no. Yeah, I would imagine the the satiating benefits of eating the fruits and vegetables would be missed also. You know, the powder can only fill you up so much. Yeah. Appetite yeah. effects would be lost in, in powder would be my... Yeah, exactly. Certainly, like I said, you wouldn't have that benefit. And there's some benefit to having vitamins and minerals and also other phytochemicals like flavanols and all of those kinds of uh, good things. I don't know if those are extracted and putting greens powders as well. You know, you may not get those. So another supplement that's, that's common is melatonin. And mm -hmm. I'm just curious as to your opinion on you know, is there ever a time to take it? Is there, you know, a toxic dose? Do you advise against it? What's your opinion on, on melatonin? So I do think it can be helpful if someone is like jet lagged or they're doing kind of shift work or their body's internal clock is, you know, kind of messed up. Or if you switch time zones, what have you, it may have some benefit there. Getting your body to kind of regulate sleep again is part of kind of our circadian rhythms. And let me preface this with saying I'm not like an expert on melatonin. I'm not an expert on sleep. My understanding, based on kind of when we normally go to sleep, we start to naturally produce melatonin around that time. Not sure in terms of drawbacks with melatonin. I don't think it affects people's uh, natural ability to, to create melatonin. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure. I'll be honest. Like I said, I think it can have utility for people who, like I said, have shift work or have kind of uh, irregular schedules. I'm not 100% sure beyond that. Like I said, examine has got a good amount of information on it. Yeah, that's kind of what I would say. Again, I don't want to kind of speak on something that I'm not super familiar with, but again, it can have that, that utility if, you know, you're switching time zones or what have you.
Absolutely. Yeah. If I was to hazard a guess, I would say that you could potentially build a tolerance that might be, but I wouldn't use that as advice. I would have to double check that. that. Yeah, I would think that's the case. Although a little bit that I've seen, that's not necessarily the case, but I'm not a hundred percent sure, you know, whether any kind of tolerance can be developed would depend on the individual. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You would want to try and set up sleep environment and schedule where you wouldn't want a supplement in the first place. I think that would probably be the best way to go. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, reducing screen time, you know, short, like in the hours before bed or, or having like an app on your computer or phone that, that uh, reduces the uh, blue light coming from screens, having a relaxation routine before bed. That's kind of what, where you'd want to prioritize is sleep hygiene. Yeah. And speaking of sleep hygiene, you had a post talking about Andrew Huberman's advice on blue light before bed. I think you had an interest and opinion on that. So should people be cautious around blue light before bed or, you know, what is, what's your opinion on it? And I think if I'm, if I remember the post that you're saying, like, it's generally good to avoid light from screens before bed. You know, I don't know exactly kind of how many hours, but in general, that is good to, you know, limit screens before bed, you know, have a limit kind of blue light. So using like an app, like I use an app called Flux on my uh, computer that takes out kind of the blue light. So my screen kind of looks orange. I think what I posted on Instagram that you may be referring to is that Andrew Huberman just kind of like his reasoning for it was just something that like didn't make any sense and was like just referencing, like he was just kind of making things up. (laughs) I was kind of on that out, you know, for someone who has millions of followers to just kind of be making things up. Seems like a pretty, you know, kind of a a bit of a red flag to me there. And, And again, I'm not trying to attack him. I'm sure he's a nice guy, but some of the things he says, I mean, in general, limiting exposure to blue screens before bed, that's a good, you know, sleep hygiene thing to do. But some of the things, just kind of things he says in general, you know, just the, the claim that he had actually made in that particular post about kind of the reasoning behind it didn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, his, his argument wasn't substantiated, which, you know, you want to have good logic behind why you're making any behavior change, especially with your health. Yeah. You know, a question that's always asked with with clients is like, how much protein should I eat? But I feel mm-hmm. like what I originally thought was 1.6 to 2.2 grams per per pound of body weight or yeah. per kg, I think. And then uh, one gram per pound. I feel like that's been kind of debated. The general recommendations have been debated. Oh, we already get enough. We need far less than what we think. And the conspiracist in me is like, well, there's a supplement industry. You know, capitalism is strong in America. Maybe you know, this whole, we need protein thing is over hype. You know, maybe we actually don't need a whole lot. Maybe 0.8 to 1.3 grams is the recommendation. That's just, you know, when, um, I haven't been socializing enough, I come up with crazy ideas like that, but, uh, what's your opinion on the, the recommendations for people who resistance train specifically, not the general population who don't. The recommendation for 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight, that comes from a meta-analysis from Morton and colleagues from 2018, looking at resistance training-induced gains in muscle mass and strength in healthy adults. Basically, we're looking at kind of like a breakpoint analysis to basically look at kind of at what level is kind of the the maximum gains, where, where do people have the maximum gains in fat-free mass, and they found if I'm remembering correctly, it was at, you know, 1.6, just above 1.6 grams per kilogram and the confidence interval around that, you know, so kind of like the, we're 95% sure it's within this range. The higher end of that was at about 2.2 grams per kilogram. So that is where that range comes from. That is a pretty evidence-based take 
that being said, that doesn't mean if you get 1.5 grams per kilogram that you're not going to make any gains. You know, these are very broad kind of general recommendations. You know, obviously it's going to vary from person to person. I also think that the, it's not that protein intake isn't important for making gains, but it's just not as like hugely, it's not as big of a, a part of the equation as a lot of people may suggest. You know, I mean, I think the programming and, and the intensity at which you train and volume that you're doing and, and your attention to detail in your training program is going to be far more important and making sure you have enough calories to build lean mass. Those are going to be really important points as well. So I don't think it's like, oh, like the supplement industry is making it higher than, than it actually is. I do think that that's an optimal you know range, that kind of 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram. Like I said, I would change that if someone's significantly overweight, maybe use their height in centimeters is kind of like a quote unquote weight to kind of base that off of. But it's a, it's a, it's a reasonable recommendation. But you know, if someone is struggling to hit that, I don't think it's like they're leaving a ton of gains on the table, you know, and, and even that meta analysis by Morton that I referred to, there wasn't like a huge difference between lower protein intakes of like 1.3 grams per kilogram and 2.0 or more. So it's not a huge huge difference there. So yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and, and also another thing to consider is that with higher protein intakes, at least for folks who are trying to lose fat and improve body composition, higher protein intakes can improve feelings of satiety, you know, from food. So there's that benefit as well. That's kind of what I would say. Certainly it's a good goal to shoot for, but if I wouldn't, if someone's getting 1.4, 1.5 grams per kilogram body weight, I wouldn't sweat it too, too much. So it's, it's almost the wrong question to ask how much protein I should get in. And it's kind of like the focus should be on training, programming, consistency of the training of the long-term first before the protein. Is that a, a better reframe? Yes, because the training is really the stimulus that is telling the muscles to grow and, and telling your muscles to get bigger and stronger, essentially. That's really the stimulus there. That's most important. The nutrition, so adequate calorie and protein intake facilitates that, but it's really the training that is the most potent stimulus there. So that's really where, for someone who wants to, to get as big and strong as possible, obviously eating enough eating enough protein is important, but you can't force feed gains. You really need to make sure that the training program is designed appropriately. So there's a, a sliver of truth in the saying, train insane or remain the same. Train insane or remain the same. There is truth to that. Obviously, there's a kind of a sweet spot where, you know, training with too much intensity too often to a point that you can't recover from, that's a problem. So you'd want to do enough volume with enough intensity that you can trigger the, the you know, response to, to, to grow and to get stronger, but it has to be something that you can recover from. Absolutely. Like we said at the start, you want to individualize the approach and insane is a blanket term and it's not going to work for the majority of people. So exactly. something that has really popped up a lot, you know, we talked about it last time, last year, and just right through, it's like a, if you had a graph for how much I hear weight loss medication being mentioned, the graph is just going up and up and up. It's, you know, it's, it's really becoming popular. A lot of people are, are using it. What's your opinion on, you know, weight loss medication and do you think that, like, I guess, where's the kind of upper limit for someone who should consider it? Because, you know, I know that if I was anyway eligible for it and I had the means, I would be like, you know, of course I want to do it. But then I think also something that is hard to know right now at this point 
and will be very interesting over the coming years is the long-term side effects of this weight loss medication. So yeah, what are your thoughts on it and how common is it and who is it for? Yeah, so the medications right now, they are generally GLP-1 agonists and some of them also have GIP agonism. So these medications mimic a hormone called GLP-1 in the body. It affects satiety, you know, the rate at which food, food leaves the stomach. So people who take these medications, they have those effects that the GLP-1 hormone uh, and again, with like Manjaro, also GIP, which is another hormone, it kind of mimics those effects. So people will feel more full, you know, they'll be a lot more satiated. They'll end up eating less food will stay. Will, like I said, gastric emptying will slow down. So food will stay in their stomach longer. So there'll be more time generally between meals. It also does some stuff in the brain to where, where people who, who are, are on these medications, they just tend to have less food noise, you know, less kind of food focus tends to be pretty common. So, you know, originally these medications were designed for people with diabetes to help with blood sugar management. Now uh, they have been approved, at least in the US for people with obesity. You do need a prescription to get it. So you do have to go to uh, like a, a doctor or an endocrinologist to get prescribed it. It's not something that you would just kind of want to take willy nilly. You know, it's something that people really need to talk to their primary care doctors about, you know, the pros and cons for taking it. For one, there are a pretty considerable amount of side effects. You know, a lot of those are really gastrointestinal in nature. So nausea, vomiting, potentially diarrhea, things like that. So, you know, definitely not for everyone. Also, it's not uncommon for people to lose a significant amount of lean mass, you know, muscle mass, because, you know, a lot of people aren't doing weight bearing exercise. And, you know, so, like I said, surprisingly, <laughs> I, I spoke with someone recently who there's actually this might be a new medication, a different type that actually promotes muscle mass. It also promotes fat loss, but holds on to muscle mass. Have you heard of this medication or is it across no. the board muscle mass is lost? What's the uh, medication? Yeah, that, I didn't get the name because they're so technical. I went straight over. Okay. I'd have to know what that medication is because to my knowledge, and again, this is just to my knowledge, the medications that are currently out there, like the uh, GLP-1 and the GIP medications, literature that we have on those do tend to indicate that losing muscle mass, losing lean mass is not uncommon, you know, particularly when people aren't already engaging in, um, you know, weight-bearing exercise, you know, so that's another thing for people who are taking these medications you know, it's a good idea to do, be doing some kind of weight-bearing exercise. I mean, I would venture to guess that that's largely just because of the significant reduction in calorie intake. Generally speaking, with the medications that are currently out there, the effects really only last while you're on the medication. So when someone goes off the medication, the effects go away. So again, that's kind of where the the state of things is at, you know, I'm sure as more literature comes out as you know, more versions of these medications come out, they're more readily available. Uh, we'll see a lot of changes, you know, a lot more availability of them, but that's where we're at currently. So, so someone goes on a course of th this weight loss medication, and then once they stop the results reverse, or how does that work? Once they stop, what happens? Well, once they stop their appetite will generally go back to normal, their desire for food, you know, because again, these medications largely work, well, they do work by reducing food intake, you know, reducing either appetite kind of physically, or like I said, mentally. So those effects will go away. Um, so then the drive to eat will come back as it was, you know, when someone grows off of the medication. Interesting. So then who, who's eligible for this? What is the sort of the BMI, the weight, you know, what are the conditions where someone can get a prescription? 
my understanding is that these medications are approved by the FDA for people with diabetes. And they, you know, within the past couple of years have been approved for people with obesity as well. Now, you know, whether that specifically means someone's BMI needs to be 30 and above or another BMI or above that, that's something I'd have to look up. I'm not hundred percent sure, but generally people with obesity and diabetes would be kind of in that category of people who, who are eligible. Interesting. So it's like more to be revealed on this one and, you know, interesting times ahead, especially with the long-term data. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's it's one of those things that it's it's going to, things are going to evolve very rapidly. Do you think that it is, you know, what is needed and that it's going to help with worldwide obesity epidemic? Or do you think something else, you know, will take its place? What's your opinion on, you know, kind of helping obesity on a worldwide scale? I, I, I do think that they will be helpful. You know, I, I I do think, I don't think it's going to be like a silver bullet, but I do think that it will be helpful, especially, you know, as more research comes out, you know, on these medications, you know, when they are kind of the formulations are, you know, kind of tinkered with uh, as they're more readily available, there's more known about kind of the side effects and how to mitigate those side effects. I, I do think that they will be of benefit. Like I said, they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily a silver bullet. You know, certainly if someone's eating for uh, like emotional reasons, I don't think that will, they'll necessarily help a ton with that. But, you know, I think they'll definitely be of benefit. Got it. And then let's just say, for example, I, you know, I'm obese and I have diabetes, type two diabetes lifestyle factors have caused me to be diagnosed with diabetes. Would you... And I'm asking you, should I take this medication? I'm qualified. I can get it. Or should I focus on the exercise and nutrition first or do a combination of both? What would your opinion in that situation be? So I would recommend you, if you were in that, that situation, I'd recommend you talk to your healthcare provider, endocrinologist or general practitioner, both about, you know, whether you are a good candidate, you know, for uh, these medications as a dietitian, it's, it's a little bit outside of my scope of practice. So I'd recommend, you know, you do talk to your practitioner about that, but then also, you know, regardless, uh, start to incorporate, you know, good, you know, exercise and nutrition habits. And also kind of, I'd want to kind of know further, are you going to be on this medication? Are you okay with doing it for the rest of your life? Is it more so a temporary kind of thing? Obviously encouraging resistance training, I think will be very important as well. Yeah, exactly. Go to the actual specific health professionals. So Dan, two quick fire questions to wrap up. So how can we differentiate between hunger and cravings? Like when is it, you know, physical, actually, I really want to eat. And when is it more like emotional? It's like the candy's there. I'm feeling stressed. It's tough to really know for sure. For a lot of people, they can kind of be intertwined. I mean, generally, Physical hunger, you know, you tend to kind of have that kind of empty, hollow feeling in your stomach, sometimes like a gurgling in your stomach, like you feel it's empty. As time goes on, it, it gets stronger rather than going away. Any kind of particular food may sound good. You know, if it is true hunger, whereas with cravings, more so for a specific food or a specific type of food, usually salty or sweet, it tends to fade if you wait, you know, 10, 15 minutes or so, oftentimes accompanies different emotions. Uh, and you may not have that kind of feeling in your stomach, like gurgling or that empty feeling, you know, that we generally associate with physical hunger. Got it. Yeah. So the physical sensations and the real need for any food at all are the key differentiators. That's yeah, that's very useful. All right, Dan. And then what's your opinion on self-weighing? I feel like this topic, I even tried to read research on it multiple times and it's inconclusive. 
So I've seen, you know, success with, you know, different people, but there's also side effects to it. So I guess what's kind of best practice for self-weighing and, you know, do you recommend it for some people or, you know, who do you not recommend it for? So I don't recommend it for people who have an eating disorder or have recently had or been diagnosed with an eating disorder or struggling with disordered eating or body image. You know, it can, you know, it can create increased feelings of obsessiveness with body weight or obsessiveness around food. And I also would recommend that people don't weigh themselves more than once per day. You know, I'd recommend if someone does weigh themselves maximum once per day, first thing in the morning, there's no reason to do it more than once per day. I mean, in the literature, if you look at research on people who lose a significant amount of weight and maintain it, those folks, it's 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 pretty common that regular self-weighing is a part of their, you know, routine. It kind of keeps them accountable. For people who are able to kind of differentiate their, you know, their self-worth with, you know, their weight on the scale, I think it can be, you know, really helpful form of accountability. But like I said, it's not necessarily for everyone. You kind of have to really know yourself, I would say, but it's, some, it's definitely something that can be, can be, be a benefit. Yeah. That point you mentioned, your self-worth is not tied to your weight at all. So the scale on the number doesn't, yeah, it's, a, it's an external, like we talked about, it's, yep. it's external. Yeah. Great. Thanks very much, Dan. Is there any kind of final message you want to leave people with before we wrap up? You know, with any goal that you have, be it body composition, you know, fat loss, muscle gain, gaining strength in the gym, be it uh, building a business, making more money, go slow, but 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 be persistent. You know, know that there's going to be obstacles along the way. They'll have bad, you'll have bad days, bad weeks, maybe even bad months, but don't give up. With really any kind of arduous goal, if we just kind of keep going and we don't really give up on ourselves or give up on the goal, persistence pays off. So go slow, but stay consistent. Sage advice, Dan, as always. Thank you very much. And maybe we can have you on again sometime. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. 